So I just want to, uh, could you, the person who left me a note about this little device, could you just raise your hand so I know who you are? Thank you. I won't be speaking until two o'clock this afternoon, so maybe you could bring it back at two for the two o'clock, otherwise it's... Should it, should it be close to me then? Or can, yeah. She can hear you, I think. But it, it was, doesn't matter. So whoever is speaking has it close yeah, by, okay. Thank you. No problem. We can just arrive. And this morning I would like to start with a poem by Upasama Pikuni. And Upasama was born in the Sakyan clan in Kapilavatu, that's the same town where the Buddha was born and grew up. And she became a lady on the court uh, of the Buddha, of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be. So she was a concubine of, of the Bodhisattva. And then uh, later on, you know, when, when the Buddha was the Buddha, she joined the order of bhikkhunis uh, in the company of Mahapachapati Gautami. And uh, one day it said, you know, in the commentaries that a Buddha appeared to her in a vision and he spoke to her a certain verse upon which she realized full awakening when she contemplated that verse. And her awakening poem uh, repeats that same teaching which she received from the Buddha in that vision. And first again the original translation by Charles Halisay. Upasama addressing herself, repeating what was spoken by the Buddha to her. The name you are called by means calm, Upasama. You should cross the flood where death holds sway, hard as it is to cross. Take care of the body, it's your last. But make sure it doesn't become a vehicle for death after this. And then I also have the... Uh, Contemporary reimagination here from the first three women. It goes like this Upasana, calm. How do you cross the flood? You cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. So, you know, one way of uh, speaking about what that flood actually is are the so-called the five hindrances. In the Pali language they are called the Nivarana. And they are called hindrances because they hinder the mind 
from knowing what is good and wholesome for oneself and for others. Because the mind is, you know, overcome, covered over or mixed up or in, in any of those five modes, which I will get into in a moment. And because of that, it can't really reflect clearly on what's happening. And I suppose, you know, quite a few of you have heard about those five hindrances many times, but they do accompany us on the path for many, many, many lifetimes. And it's good, you know, to just hear about them from many different angles and from many different people, because every time maybe we're just going to get one new little facet, you know, becomes more clear, and that's really helpful. So the first one is um, sensual desire. In the Pali language, it's called kamachanda. And... There's a very good ex teaching example by the Buddha simile where he explains the hindrances um, as different and different substances which are influencing a bowl of water which is used you know as a mirror to see your own likeness in it in the olden times when there were no mirrors yet that was used. So in sensual desire, Kamachanda is compared with such a bowl of water where there are colors mixed into the water. And then when I look into that water, I can see my face maybe red or blue or green. So there's something extra. It's not the way things really are. And then the next hindrance is aversion or anger, Bayabada in the Pali language. And that is compared with the bowl of water where the water is boiling and bubbling and steaming and so on. And if you look into it, you can't really see your image. It's distorted again. And then the next one is sloth and topa, tinamida in the Pali language. And that's compared with a bowl of water which was standing in a dark place and is covered over by algae. When you look into it, you can't really see your likeness again. Next one is restlessness and worry. Udacha kukucha in the Bali language. Very clear kind of sound about how that feels, the restlessness and worry. And that's compared with a bowl of water where the wind is, is going over the surface of the water and the water gets all rippled up and we can't really see our likeness again. And then the last one is doubt, vichikicha. And that's compared with a bowl of water, which the water is very muddy, hasn't settled yet. So we, again, you know, we can't really see clearly. And then when none of those hindrances are present, that would be compared to a crystal clear, fresh bowl of water where we can very well see reflected whatever is there. And then, you know, our practice is about recognizing when the hindrances are present and recognizing when the hindrances are not present. That's basically, you know, the practice in a nutshell. Because what is important to, to start to see ever more clearly is the conditionality, 
that the mind is a product of causes and conditions and only some of those causes and conditions are within the sphere of our direct influence and some are not. And to start to see that, that conditionality and then take advantage of that, of those uh, natural uh, processes. That's what we do in our practice. So seeing, you know, when a hindrance is present or absent, and then starting to understand the conditions which lead to the arising of a hindrance and to the removal of a hindrance. And then even, you know, to see the conditions which uh, helps to prevent the future arising of a hindrance. So, but first we need to know if it's here or not here. And that's also when I was guiding us at the meditation yesterday to, you know, recognize the subtle joy which is present if the mind doesn't hanker after anything. That's a very important point because that gets very often overlooked. Because it's very subtle, especially in the, in the beginning if one hasn't cultivated that recognition yet, then it can very easily escape because it's so subtle. But over time, you know, if we start looking and the mind gets more refined and strengthened, which means simply, you know, when we are cultivating those seven, seven factors of awakening, I spoke about the day before yesterday, and they are often also called the anti-hindrances, because they are the opposite of the, of the hindrances. And they are seven, but the hindrances are actually also seven, but they are five, because two of them are doubles. And I have hung up a sheet outside in the walking hall, and I think also at the notice board, where you can see the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And for example, you know, the first hindrance of essential desire, let's see, sensual desire has a reason, I see over there a big chocolate cake, and then, and then the only thing I need to know is, oh, sensual desire has a reason. I don't need to say, you know, I'm bad, I don't, I shouldn't have this, or all of that, that's really extra material. I just need to know sensual desire has a reason, no need to make any judgment on that, because it's completely normal, you know, having this body which needs to eat in order to live. Of course, it wants, you know, to eat something if there is something and if, if it's hungry. So that the anti-hindrance would be the first uh, factor of awakening, which is simply mindfulness. And then in the case of, for example, aversion would arise, then I could, for example, start to get interested, oh, why is there, you know, aversion arising without needing to do any judgment on top of that? That would be the second uh, factor of awakening, investigation of dhammas or interest. Then the next uh, two are sloth and topor, and the anti-hindrances would be energy, if there is sloth, you know, bring up some energy, open your eyes, take a deep breath, wash your face, get up, do some walking meditation. And topor, the anti-hindrance in that case would be joy. Or, you know, recognizing the subtle joy of not wanting anything. Recognizing the absence when that is 
coming together for you. And then restlessness and worry. The anti-hindrance to restlessness would be calm, basadi, and to worry would be uh, stability or focus, collectedness of mind, samadhi. And then the last the hindrance is doubt, and that the anti-hindrance would be upeka, equipoise. So you know, seeing the mind, you know, not being able to settle and again and again wanting to roll up something and, and think about it and then recognizing, oh, you know, this is simply doubt. And then sitting with equanimity, equipoise, and just holding that doubt in awareness. You know, how it feels in the body feels probably rather unpleasant. But just having enough equipoise to be with the doubt and knowing this is impermanent too. And that's like the central insight, you know, which can make any hindrance, anything what happens in our life, as soon as we bring in that reflection, this too is impermanent. We again back to the practice. And then through, uh, you know, through observation, through recognition, Noticing, yes, it's really true. Even sometimes it feels like that's never going to stop. It also is impermanent. And have that, you know, that become an unshakable confidence in the fact that all conditions are impermanent. And uh, there's also very beautiful uh, similes for when the hindrances have ceased, at least temporarily, and uh, the sensual desire, when sensual desire has ended, that's compared with having paid back a debt, the relief we feel after that. When aversion or anger has been ceasing, it's like you know, becoming, uh, coming out of a, of a disease, of a sickness. A sloth and topa, when that has ended, is compared with to be released from prison. Sloth and topa can feel like very, very confining and we can't really even hardly open our eyes. Then uh, ending of restlessness and worry is compared with being released from slavery. No longer, you know, being do this, do that, do this, do that. Not anymore like running and running and being ordered about by something in our mind, you know, which has arisen. And then the last one, doubt, is like coming home from a dangerous journey, you know, through the desert maybe, where we don't know uh, when will we be, you know, find food again and water. So that's the, those images, they can give us like a, uh, they are in very old uh, language, you know, old uh, images, but we can, uh, I think, resonate how that would feel. And then, you know, when the hindrances at least temporarily have settled down, then the water can be compared with a crystal clear mountain lake. You know, around it, all of the mountains reflect in the surface of the lake, and we can also see to the bottom of the lake and see the fish and whatever is happening in there. This is absolute clarity and 
you know, we really can see without any hindrance, without any extra, the way things truly are. And what we can then see ever more clearly is the conditionality and that there is no real self behind all of this, running the show. It is just causes and conditions. And what they all have in common, they are all impermanent. They are all unsatisfactory because they are impermanent. And they are all empty of a self, they are all anatta. And this, you know, will, will be seen ever more clearly and then that can lead to the complete destruction of those fetters Ayananabodhi was mentioning, you know, which keep us bound to the wheel of becoming, running and running and running and, you know, looking for the next, uh, you know, the next place to stand on and then that, you know, starts to change and then keep on running. And in this manner, you know, can the hindrances can become the basis, can become the food for the development of the seven factors of awakening. And that's why the seven factors of awakening are also sometimes called the anti-hindrances. And that's really the very, very good news, you know. It's not about that we need to get rid of the hindrances in order to practice, no. We just need to recognize when the hindrances are present and start there. And then see the conditionality, then start to understand how all of that works and adjust our life accordingly. For example, no longer you know, going into situations or being with people as far as we can you know, influence that, which bring up those or strengthen those hindrances in our system. Taking the precepts, you know, taking the refuges, coming on retreat, there are so many, many things you know, we can do to support the mind, to not be so constantly triggered in that direction. And rather, you know, uh, supporting the mind so it's much more going in direction of those seven factors of awakening, the anti-hindrances. And then that's a, a true you know, ex exemplification of the famous uh, saying of the Buddha that one who sees dependent arising sees the Dharma and one who sees the Dharma sees dependent arising. Majjhimanikaya 28. And you know, that, remem that remembering this too is impermanent when it's there, you know, when it's like, when it feels like, oh, it's gonna kind of be there forever and I'm never gonna see, I don't see a way out of it. Remembering that, even, you know, it doesn't feel like this. That is very, very crucial. And then, you know, our practice is simply to use this natural conditionality to support the mind, to go in the right direction. That's all we can do. And then when the mind is really settled, when the hindrances are not active for some time, that's an experience of the temporary liberation of the mind, this open awareness, 
with this very subtle joy which can become apparent if we are training ourselves to look for it. And, uh, you know, even in daily life, there is hardly a situation, you know, where we can't bring in the thought, all things are impermanent. And that's enough, you know, to ensure that there is the taste of Dhamma, even, you know, in the most difficult situations. Even it's just that one sentence, all things are impermanent. And then over time, you know, through the training, then it becomes an ever stronger conviction that this is really true. And that's how we cross the flood, you know, because that gives us the necess- necessary grounding so that even in the midst of great uh, waves, you know, of, of the uh, five hindrances, if we can remember that, it helps us to calmly cross the flood. And uh, like to end by reading one more time the uh, reimagination. How do you cross the flood? You cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. So, you know, that's something to, to remember when you next time, you know, in the, in the midst of the flood. You just remember that much. It just lifts the whole practice up into being a practice which leads towards full awakening. Just simply by recognizing this is impermanent too. That just makes a world of a difference. Even, you know, it's still unpleasant, still stressful, but there's something there, you know, which is just a crack, which lets the light come in and you know, even if there has been a room a million years in darkness, if we are just lighting a match for a moment, it's never going to be the same again, because we've seen that. And it just takes out some of the charge, and it helps us, you know, to use those very hindrances as food for the seven factors of awakening. And the perfection of those seven factors of awakening is the same as you know, full awakening, basically, Nibbana, Nirvana, however we want to call it. So we can sit now for about 35 minutes. just starting where we are, which is, you know, the body sitting on the chair, on the cushion, 
and remembering why we have come here to this retreat and in general why we are practicing. Remembering that just again for a moment. And then coming back to full body awareness and allowing the mind to rest on the body just as the body rests on the cushion or on the chair. And remembering, you know, that even if the floods are very fast, the only way to cross the flood is doing it calmly, which doesn't mean necessarily slow, but calm. Feeling for stones. Which means, you know, coming back to the body, sitting, breathing in and breathing out. Grounding ourselves in the elements which are part of this planet. Just as the Buddha, you know, it said that in the, on the eve of his awakening he was touching the earth and he was calling her for witness for all the work he had been doing. So coming back to this earth body bringing the mind and the body together. So then for the remainder of the sitting I leave you to yourself and I ring the bell in uh, 30 minutes.
so um, now it's time again for practice discussions or for movement practice and thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate